Hello, this is Professor Leslie Garfield-Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today I'm speaking with Professor Paula Francesi of Seton Hall University Law School about landlord rights and tenant rights. Paula Francesi is the Peter W. Rodino Professor of Law at Seton Hall University School of Law. She's a leading expert in property law, housing reform, and government ethics, and nationally renowned for her excellence in teaching. She's one of only 26 law professors included in What the Best Law Teachers Do, published by Harvard University Press, and the author of several books, including A Short and Happy Guide to Being a Law Student and the premier property study guide, A Short and Happy Guide to Property Law. In this episode, Professor Francesi walks us through landlord-tenant rights. Toward the end of our chat, she provides a wonderful template for analyzing landlord-tenant questions. All right, well, thank you so much for joining me. This is really an honor. It's my pleasure. <laughs> thank you. So um, we're going to talk about landlord's rights and tenant rights, which is a component of property, right? Yes. All right, so just tell me about landlord rights and tenant rights. It is so essential, and I really embrace the subject matter and endeavor to communicate to my law students in my property class that landlord-tenant law affects us quite literally where we live. Most of us have been tenants, either presently or in the past. Some have family members who are or have been landlords. We read the headlines We are aware of the crisis in housing displacement and gentrification, in homelessness, and how it is that countless Americans are living Mm hand-to-mouth, spending upwards of 80% of their monthly income on rent. That is not only untenable, it is impossible to sustain. Mm -hmm. So the subject matter, in theory is very powerful, but in practice becomes even more urgently relevant. When we talk about landlord-tenant law, I begin with tenants' duties. Okay. The first of those is the duty to pay rent, and that may be the most Mm self-evident of duties. Mm That yields two scenarios, typically on a law school exam fact pattern and for us as practitioners in this space. First, a tenant fails to pay rent but is still in possession of the premises. So, for example, the tenant has a five-year term of years lease Mm -hmm. with the landlord. She's only one year into it when her rent payments stop. The landlord comes to you, his lawyer, and seeks counsel, wondering, what am I supposed to do? There are four years left on this contract, Mm -hmm. which is what a lease is. I haven't seen rent for last month or this month. I have my own mortgage payments to make. What what are my rights? How do I proceed? And the law answers that there are several rights available to an aggrieved landlord when a tenant vacates with time left on a term of years lease. So I just want to clear one thing. When you say the law, is this common law or is this statutory law? Is this a combination of both? Does it vary by jurisdiction? Yeah, it's a great question. It's common law Mm -hmm. and it evolved from the cases. Mm -hmm. 
and then it's been codified by or modified by statute. And every state has its own landlord-tenant statute within its statutes annotated. Okay. And there are variations from state to state, but also certain universals. Mm -hmm. So the three options that would be available to an aggrieved landlord when a tenant vacates with time left on a term of year's lease are fairly universal across the U.S. Mm -hmm. The first is to determine that the tenant's failure to pay rent is an offer of surrender. Surrender in property law means that the tenant wishes to give up the lease, and she wishes to be amicably discharged from the lease obligations. Mm A tenant who is not paying rent on a term of year's lease is presumed to be making an offer of surrender in many states. Okay. So that, that so they're basically saying, I don't want to be party to this lease anymore right. in the way I want to be let out. Or I can't. I cannot continue to meet my obligations okay. under the lease, so please release me from the lease's terms and duration. If it seems that the tenant's failure to pay rent based on the facts is a tacit offer to surrender the Mm -hmm. premises, the landlord has an option to exercise. The landlord could either choose to accept the Mm -hmm. offer of surrender, in which case the lease is discharged without any further liability redounding to the tenant's detriment, or the landlord can determine no surrender. I'm not accepting that. A lease is a lease. A deal is a deal. Mm -hmm. You're bound. You owe me past rent and you owe me rent for the remaining years. If the landlord chooses that course or determines that the tenant is best evicted for failure to pay rent, that's certainly an option. Mm -hmm. So a tenant who fails to pay rent with time left may not be amicably discharged. That's up to the landlord, and the landlord may instead proceed against the tenant for the rent that has been owed and to evict the tenant for the non-payment of rent. So that leads me to two questions. The first question is... This, it's, a, it's a contract, right? The, mm. It's a lease. A lease is a contract between the landlord and the tenant. Are there instances where the law creates a landlord-tenant relationship without a written lease? Yeah, absolutely. We say in property classes that possession is nine-tenths of the law. <laughs> so the ten- <laughs> you said that even not in property classes, yeah. The tenant's possession of the leased premises Mm -hmm. with the landlord's consent, Mm -hmm. coupled with the payment of regularized rent, will cause a court to treat the relationship as an implied lease. Great. And then my second question is, assuming the tenant does not pay, the landlord has a choice. He can either, I'm repeating back to you, he can either choose to accept this non-payment and the tenant can leave amicably, or he can compel her to pay, or can evict her. But eviction is getting the tenant out of the premises, right? right. So what's the difference between the scenario where he says, okay, it's okay to leave, 
versus evict. Oh, because in the first situation, they say, I'm not paying anymore, let me out. And in the second, they say, I'm not paying anymore, and they won't leave the premises. Is that's that correct? It. Got that's it. it. <laughs> that's it. That's obvious. But you got it. It took me that's a moment, a, but it's obvious, I guess. It's, it's a great connection, and eviction comes with some terrible consequences, typically for a tenant mm-hmm. who's... Uh, credit history is now blemished by virtue of the eviction action. Eviction will also cause the landlord money, the filing fees, and typically um, the retaining of a, of a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the vast majority of landlords are represented by counsel. The vast majority of tenants, by contrast, in the residential setting are not. Hmm. Um, a landlord will typically be paying lawyer's fees and it also enduring the um, delay of the eviction proceeding. Those proceedings are meant to be summary and swift, but in congested, backlogged docket settings, they can be anything but summary. If the landlord confronted with a tenant who vacates with time left on the term of year's lease determines that the landlord wants to proceed against the tenant for the rent due but not evict that tenant, that landlord has the option of doing just that and actually doing nothing until the end of the prescribed term of years. That option, doing nothing until the end of the prescribed term of years, is available today only in a very, very small minority of states because the vast majority of states, with the exception of New York State, oblige the landlord to at least try to mitigate its damages by finding a tenant in reasonable substitution for the defaulting tenant. So if a tenant wrongfully vacates with time left on a term of year's lease, in the vast majority of states, but not in New York, the landlord has to try to cut its losses and find a tenant on account of the defaulting tenant. Oh, that's interesting. New York does not oblige an aggrieved landlord to mitigate pursuant to the notion that the tenant's wrong should not compel an affirmative onus upon the wronged party, in this case, the landlord. So to summarize, if a tenant fails to pay rent in a term of year's lease with time left on the lease and is still in possession, the landlord has several options. It could choose to treat the vacating as a tacit offer of surrender, Mm -hmm. which landlord accepts, thereby discharging the lease and amicably releasing the tenant, or it could determine no, surrender is impermissible and proceed against the tenant for the unpaid rent, short of moving for eviction, or proceed for the rent owed and move for eviction. Finally, the majority of states require that a landlord, if a tenant is out of possession with time left, at least try to find a substitute tenant on behalf of the defaulting tenant. Now, in many, many cases, 
a tenant breaches the duty to pay rent but is still in possession of the premises. The tenant has fallen behind on the rent. The tenant has gotten ill and therefore no longer has the monies available. The tenant has used the money to remediate other on-site defects that the landlord has not remediated. For whatever reason, if a tenant is still in possession, the landlord's only options Mm -hmm. are to proceed against the defaulting tenant in court. The landlord must not resort to self-help. The landlord must not change the locks. The landlord must not harass the tenant. The landlord must not get into the apartment while the tenant is gone and remove the tenant's possessions. Self-help is punishable civilly and criminally. I mean, that's interesting because you would intuitively think it's the landlord's property. The landlord has a right, but once the tenant takes possession... The landlord has no right to enter it, regardless of whether the tenant is respecting his end of the bargain. Bargain, right? right. That's right. exactly it. The second important duty that tenants have is the duty not to commit waste. They must not harm the premises um, in any way. And if harm is occasioned, uh, a tenant must remediate or be liable in damages. So, for example. A tenant is hanging paintings on a wall without measuring, Mm -hmm. which is something that, unfortunately, I tend to do, (laughs) and I make many holes in the wall. (laughs) That tenant who does that would have to spackle and restore the wall to its original condition, give and take, wear and tear. A tenant must be duly diligent with the premises and not leave the front door and windows wide open during a torrential downpour. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if damage is occasioned by the torrents of water streaming in, the tenant is responsible for remediation. If, in fact, the problem is of her own way making, that's waste, mm-hmm. whether by neglect or affirmative destruction. On the landlord's side, the landlord has several duties. The first of those is to deliver physical possession at the start of the lease. If a prior tenant is still on site when the new lease begins, that landlord is liable. Hmm. Second, the landlord implicitly promises in every residential lease that the premises will be habitable and suitable for human dwelling. Infestation by rats, termites, bed bugs, roaches, renders premises uninhabitable. An absence of heat in the winter, the absence of running water, uh, similarly render premises uninhabitable. A tenant who suffers a betrayal of habitability standards is within her rights to withhold rent or apply withheld rent to remediate. And so I just have a quick question on that. For the standard for rendering something uninhabitable, is there a list? Is it statutory? Is it common law? Is it a situation where it would be a good, good exam question, I guess, if you give yes. a particular topic, a particular event? How, how does one decide 
when something's rendered uninhabitable, then, in other words? It's a combination of judge-made and statutory law. So to discern relevant standards of habitability, one would first go to the housing code. Okay. And then to the weight of precedent. There are certain universals that have emerged out of the several decades of case law that reveal to us, for example, that the absence of heat in the winter is a betrayal of the habitability standard, Uh, a crumbling ceiling, mold infestation, betrayals of habitability, uh, insect, rodent infestation, similar betrayals. Other, more subtle betrayals can occur based upon the relevant local housing code standards, which might oblige enhanced security measures be provided in their absence. The premises are deemed unsafe, and so on. The second landlord duty is related to the first. A landlord promises quiet enjoyment. It's called the implied covenant of quiet Mm -hmm. enjoyment. And unlike the implied warranty of habitability, this covenant applies universally to both residential and commercial leases. It requires for its um, cause of action three elements. There must be a substantial impairment to use and enjoyment. The landlord must have been given notice of the problem, in fairness, to give the landlord a chance to remediate. And if the landlord fails to remediate, the tenant must vacate. She is not permitted to remain on site and plead that she has been constructively evicted. The last element can work hardship for a tenant who may not have anywhere else to go. In which case, in a residential setting, she may wish to plead breach of the implied warranty of habitability, because there she won't have to vacate. Okay, great. All right, so that's that's the kind of bundle of rights for the landlord and the bundle of rights for the tenant. Right, bundle of duties. Bundle of duties, I should say. Right. Right, okay. So if you were to ask an exam question on this area... What might be a typical exam question you would ask? First, I would present a fact pattern that would involve a lease, probably a residential lease, Mm -hmm. because that's where there is the greatest richness of case law, and most of the property case books take us to the residential setting. I would begin first by providing some of the relevant terms of the lease to gauge whether or not the test takers are able to discern which kind of leasehold interest this is. There are four kinds. It could be a term of years where we know the end date. It could be a periodic tenancy where we don't know the end date and it runs in continuous successive intervals. It could be a tenancy at will, rare, but still a viable option, terminable at the will of either party, or it could be a tenancy at sufferance created when a tenant is held over past the expiration of the original lease. I want to know that my students can identify the nature of the leasehold and its characteristics. 
from there. It's important to know, is this really a residential lease or is it commercial? Because rights and duties differ based on the answer to that question. The fact pattern typically will proceed to include problems with the premises. So, for example, the tenant, um, residential tenant, suffers excessive draftiness, causing her and her children to uh, get sick an awful lot. Thereafter, the premises flood through no fault of the tenant, causing a mold problem in one of the sinks. Tenant has two years left on a term of years lease, perhaps, and she vacates. Mm -hmm. Was tenant within her rights? And that raises the opportunity for the student to first identify this is a term of years lease, perhaps begin by noting that typically absent a reason for the vacating, the landlord would have the options that we spoke of earlier. The landlord could choose to treat the vacating as surrender and accept it, or in a minority of states do nothing and hold the tenant liable for the next two years rent just as if she were there, or as the majority requires, try to mitigate and find a substitute tenant. But then the bigger question would become on that fact pattern, did the tenant breach in the first place by vacating or was that a reasonable, legally justified decision? That takes us to landlord's duties Mm -hmm. and the student would articulate first that there is an implied warranty of habitability that may have been betrayed on these facts. However, and this is essential for every law student to internalize, it is vitally important first to state the legal rule and then apply the rule to the facts presented. Which is why I call my podcast a lot of facts, by the way. That's it. That <laughs> because is you the, have to take the rule and apply the facts to the rule, not let the facts drive the decision. That's it. That, and that's what we do as lawyers. Mm-hmm. That's what we do as lawyers. So a good way to assure that that's happening is for the student to use bridge words like here or on these facts. Oh, that's so smart. Those are great tips. Thereafter, once applying the various doctrines to the facts, it's very important for the test taker to state which additional facts require further exploration and Mm -hmm. investigation. So this fact pattern and most will be deliberately under-inclusive with regard to content, detail, nuance. So I would like my students to ask, the apartment is drafty. What does that mean? And how can that be gauged? And is there a standard for discerning draftiness? What was the median temperature during the period uh, complained of. Uh, There's a problem with mold. Well, to what extent is that a substantial impairment in value? To what extent might that be quickly remediated with 
bleach or Clorox. Mm -hmm. So these are fact-sensitive determinations. A good answer, after identifying the nature of the leasehold interest, would then go on in considering whether tenants vacating was justifiable to consider the habitability standard, noting that that applies here because it's a residential lease, mm -hmm. if it is. Mm -hmm. And then talk about the covenant of quiet enjoyment, with, which exists as a cause of action contemporaneously with the betrayal of habitability. The covenant for quiet enjoyment, the student would note, applies to residential and commercial leases. Okay. Here, it would apply. This is a residential lease. It would apply. The student would apply the elements. Is there a substantial interference? That's a question of fact. It would seem so, but we need more facts. Was the landlord given notice of the problem and a chance to remediate? We don't know that. That's a question of fact that would have to be discerned. The tenant vacated with time left. To plead constructive eviction, she would have to do that. To plead habitability breach, she would not have to vacate, but she could vacate. I would then offer up as a conclusion a concise summary of the facts that would need to be learned mm -hmm. and a good lawyerly judgment as to the tenant's strongest claim. Okay. Because we do, as lawyers, make uh, even tentative judgments that will determine where we should keep our future focus in a given case. So here, it may be that the habitability claim is the most promising, since we don't know um, about the elements of constructive eviction or breach of the covenant of quiet enjoyment having been met. I tell my students that the good news is that when making those sorts of value judgments, there are no mistakes. It's right. conjecture, right. it's a hypothesis, and it would have to be tested. Right, right. Because ultimately it's up to the jury. Right, fact finders yeah. will yes. decide, yes. and that's why we have an adversarial process. Wonderful. Um, I do have one question. You talked about the four types of leaseholds. Does it matter which of those four types of leaseholds it is for purposes of evaluating a question? So, for instance, does it matter if it's a tenancy in suffering versus a, a, a tenancy of years? Yes, absolutely. If it's a tenancy at sufferance, that presumes that the tenant is a wrongdoer and already the basis for an eviction action or pending action by the landlord. So that would affect the, the tenor of the analysis. It'll be less likely that you'll have a tenancy at sufferance and more likely that it will be either a term of years or a periodic tenancy. Mm -hmm. If it's a term of years, be on the lookout for questions related to the landlord's duty to mitigate or cut his losses when a tenant vacates with time left on the term. Be on the lookout there, too, for whether the tenant was justified legally in abandoning the, or vacating the premises. By contrast, if it's a periodic tenancy running continuously for successive intervals with no end date, be on the lookout for whether or not 
adequate notice was given by the tenant in terminating. The notice provisions become more fiercely relevant when it is a periodic tenancy where notice is required to terminate. Makes perfect sense. The landlord can't just walk in and take possession of the place. That there are that's right. and, and actually to your point, that's actually a good thing because it protects the tenant from the landlord who does have the power because right. they're the property owner and they probably right. have more money, et cetera, et cetera. That's right. That's exactly yeah, correct. That makes sense. This was wonderful. I particularly like how you laid out the um, elements for student and thoughtfulness, which is which goes to your book, A Short and Happy Guide to Property. It is the best book. It took <laughs> it took twenty five years teaching and thinking about the subject matter to lay it out in a way that I, as a as a as a beginning law student, would be able to assimilate. And even now, as a as a professor and, ac- and practitioner uh, find very resonant in uh, setting forth all of the core. Yeah, you, you, you laid out beautifully in the book and you laid it out beautifully today, so thank you so much for it's taking the time pleasure. to speak pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks. So that's my discussion with Professor Paula Francisi. Again, I highly recommend her study guides, A Short and Happy Guide to Property, and the rest of her short and happy guides. There's one on contracts, one on sales, constitutional law, and my favorite, a short and happy guide to becoming a law student. If you're enjoying our podcasts, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to the podcast. If there's a professor with whom you'd like us to speak or a topic you'd like us to address, tweet us at Law to Fact. Thanks as always to www.bensound.com. Enjoy your day.